welcome to Light Warrior Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Karen Kan, author of the number one best-selling book, Sensitivity is Your Superpower, How to Harness Your Gifts, Fulfill Your Purpose, and Create a Life of Joy. And if you happen to be one of the folks that are highly sensitive like I am, whether you're an earth angel or a star seed or an indigo soul, and you would like support in this very tumultuous times, I'd love for you to get my free gift called the Sensitive Soul Empowerment Guide. You can get that at sensitivesoulguide.com. It helps you with the three ways of navigating your way to more peace, positivity, and personal power so you can live the life of your dreams and anchor in that brand new reality for all of us that we as humans want to experience in this reality in this lifetime. So today I have a very, very special guest. And let me share a little bit about how I found her. So I am on Instagram. I'm trying to, you know, just looking at you know, different posts and um, going down this rabbit hole, you know, <laughs> because I'm seeing things happening around the world that are very, very concerning to me, especially somebody who, like me, has always wanted world peace ever since I was like, what, five, something like that. It's kind of a strange thing for a five-year-old to say that's what they really want for Christmas is world peace, but that really is who I am and was. So, and I come across this gal, and I don't even know her name because all I see is health justice teas. And I'm like, justice, health justice. Oh, I'm into health justice. What's going on, right? And so I'm listening to her. I'm seeing, you know, some of her T-shirts uh, that she has, and I'm like, ooh, uh, that, yeah, I resonate with that one. <laughs> and so, by the way, if you want to see these, you can see them at healthjusticetees.com. So healthjustice, all one word, T-E-E-S.com, and. Uh, Natural health rights now, like no more lockdowns. And, I, and then I realized she's Canadian. I'm like, hey, you know, fellow Canadian. And then I realized, wait a second, she just, she left Canada? Like she escaped from Canada? I'm like, whoa, I got to hear this story, right? Because I got friends, I got family in Canada. I've been very concerned about the folks in Canada because of some of the rules and things uh, happening in there which, that are very strict, and my parents and family members and friends uh, are completely oblivious, seemingly, to what's going on, and I'm over here, and they think the United States is freaking nuts, okay, with our right-wing, left-wing kind of stuff, and I'm like looking at them going, uh, there's stuff happening in your country, too, that is really, really concerning. So I would, you know, wanted Susan to be our guest here, Susan Sanfield, on the show today to share with us her personal journey of why she felt she really needed to, quote unquote, escape from Canada uh, in order to pursue her dream and passion of health justice for everyone. So without further ado, welcome Susan to the show. Thank you. It's an honor and a privilege to be here. Hmm. Well, we really appreciate uh, you know what you're doing and are attempting to do as well worldwide. And uh, my mom's name's Susan, by the way. <laughs> Lovely. Yes. So you know, here you are, a Canadian, okay, in Canada. So let's let's rewind the tape a little bit. And you know, prior to the pandemic, what were you doing? What was going on in your life? And then what happened after this whole thing started? Okay. Well, I moved to Africa in 2004, and I lived there for 12 years, working, living, having kids, getting married. I returned to Canada in 2016, and I started bumping as a mother, and I started bumping into stuff that didn't seem fair and democratic, and I started joking about it as punishment Canada. 
And I grew up in the 70s. I was born in 68, so I grew up in the 70s, which I think were the best years in Canada, in the 80s. And so I, I know a very different Canada than what we have now, a much more free and open Canada and my father's generation and whatnot. And then, then I was threatened in 2018 by the B.C. government. I was threatened to be jailed for six months and fined $250,000 from a very unlawful order and council document that I stumbled upon. Um, for not giving my children's health records to the government. Those were the, those were the offenses. That's what I was being threatened with. Wow. And I was shocked. Yeah, I was shocked. Now, this thing didn't come to my house with police and guns or anything, but I was shocked that legislators and policymakers in Victoria, which is our capital of BC, would even have the nerve to draft something like this. And I was like, I had never been interested in policy like myself being, you know, getting into the details of these kinds of papers. So I started digging around and I came across our public health officer mm-hmm. who lived and worked by me on the west side of Vancouver by UBC. And I discovered the hornet's nest of the corruption of the health ministry, public health, et cetera, et cetera, this whole world specifically targeting children and schools with drugs. So I had Whoa. been researching that for two years before COVID. So when COVID hit, I was the first one to jump off the couch and go, I know exactly what this is. Wow. Wow. Wait, so so this public health official, uh, I mean, did you like pry it out of him or her? Or like, how did that, how, how did you get all this information? Like, wasn't that super secret? No, no. This is a weird, obscure thing about policy and why everybody needs to really understand what these lawmakers are doing behind closed doors. They don't, they're not, they're untoward with about it. So because I was not going to sign up to have my children's medical records at the school, mm-hmm. I was told that I could be punished. And I started laughing, right? I was like, what, really? Because I'm still that kid from the 70s and 80s that we didn't, it wasn't like that back then, right? We were free. We were way more free. And so I got my hands on the document and I read it. And I saw that it had been signed into this, not law, but uh, kind of this fake law. And so I started looking into the powers of the public health officer. And her name is Bonnie Henry. And she was new. She had just been appointed. And within two or three months of her appointment, this order was put into place. So I knew it was connected to her. And I found money that she was accepting through the pharmaceutical department at UBC. I just started piecing together this whole web of, and I knew that public health was corrupt because I lived in Africa for 12 years. And I thought, oh my God, this is happening on the west side of Vancouver and places like Toronto or our beautiful free Canadian cities. We're being targeted. And my children had been targeted. They wanted my children's health records. And they were willing to threaten me with these fines if I didn't give them to them. So I thought, why do they want my kids' health records so much? What's really Mm -hmm. going on, right? Mm -hmm. Who would benefit from having my children's health records? Right. And And that's a big ticket. I mean, that wasn't like... Yeah, that's where you always go. You always ask who benefits. Who's benefiting from this? And I've been involved with human rights for 20 years. So, But it was new to me in Canada. It was new to be a mother. And it was new to have the pharmaceutical industry breathing down my my you know my back following me because I'd never been involved with any sort of drugs myself. Mm-hmm. Wow. 
Wow. So I was really, I, I was, I knew exactly what was going on when I saw her step out on TV and start spewing out all this propaganda. I didn't know how big the issue was going to become. None of us did, but I was ready. And I knew that very few people would have the insight that I did because I had been studying this for two years. And everybody right. I talked to, nobody had any idea what I was talking about. Right, because, you know, you, it was very personal. And, you know, you went down that rabbit hole and discovered all these things that you can now obviously, you know, share with, with the rest of the world. And Canada's, you know, uh, traditionally not seen as uh, anything. I mean, it's not a third world country. You know, we don't have, you know, at least lately, you know, wars within Canada. You know, it's, you know, we go to, um, you know, when people, when Americans, I know this is the, bit, the big joke that we had uh, as, as uh, teenagers and university as well, you know, when, when our American friends would, would go to hike, you know, in Europe or something, they put a Canadian flag on their backpack so they were treated nicely, you know. <laughs> and yeah, so, but, yeah, but we, our governance system is anything but fair, and that really is why we have such a problem in Canada right now. We have a terrible governance structure for freedom. <clears throat> Unlike America, America has one of the best, if not this, if not the best. Well, and, and it's funny because, uh, like I said, that by perception, the perception from my you know Canadian friends and family are like, oh my gosh, I'd hate to be in America right now. There's so much fighting and there's so much this, right? But they don't realize in their own backyard, their their freedoms uh, and health freedoms are being stripped day by day, minute by minute, and they're completely oblivious to it. <sighs> Yeah, and, that, and that's why I stepped into the role. I led marches for three months. It was necessary because nobody else was out there. But then I realized that it was way more powerful to build an army of leaders rather than me be a big leader leading many people. I thought we need more leaders. So I stepped back from being that face of the rallies, speaking on megaphones, talking to journalists, and I thought i got to build an army. And that's when I started collaborating and working with women and mothers to get, you know, hundreds or thousands or hundreds of thousands of them out there doing what I was doing. Because that's where you, that's how you really build broad-based movements and power is when you have, you know, a multitude of voices. Uh, and that's what my focus has been for the last year and a half. Mm. Mm, that's amazing. Now, I'm, no, I'm sure people are going to wonder um, exactly how did you get out of that $250,000 fine? <laughs> like, what did you practice? Okay, so I... Yeah, I phoned my member of the Legislative Assembly, which is my provincial representative. I live in his riding, and I had known him for 14 years. I had helped his human rights group make a lot of money designing justice programs, because that's what I've been doing. And I sat with him, and I said, what is this? What's going on? And he was very cagey, and then I knew, I was like, this is really rotten. He didn't speak to me in a way like, oh, my God, this is shocking. Of course you're upset. He knew exactly what was going on, and he knew that it was unlawful. And so a lot of, he was very blasé about it, and that's when I real I was like, oh, my God, we're in such trouble in this country because our government, public servants, they're in their own ruling class now. They don't mm. perceive that they work for us anymore. We work for them. That's how they really perceive it, and my meeting with him showed that. He was a struggling human rights lawyer when I met him almost 20 years ago, and now he's one of the most powerful people in the province. And he didn't care about me at all. I mean, he gave me two or three minutes and he wasn't rude, but he didn't have the open compassion, the sensitivity, you know, like we were talking about before. 
he was just there to give me as little information as he can, and he walked back and into his office, and I was like, yeah, no compassion, no empathy, nothing. So a lot of us went to see our MLAs, like dozens of us, maybe, maybe even a hundred of us. We spread the word really quickly, and they reduced the fines to $2,500, which was still not acceptable, but they knew. They knew that the document, this order, was very egregious. We couldn't, uh, I don't know about the jail part, but I mean, it was so ludicrous, right? Uh, and then yeah, we all started networking. If you didn't yeah, all the mothers said, no, that, that's, that's a joke. That can't be real. Well, and like I said, it's not like they were going to come to my house and say, okay, you're the mother that's not giving it to us. I, I didn't think it was going to be like that. But what had motivated these lawmakers to have to sign in the first place? And what tipped me off to the corruption was that it requires three signatures. So it was the Minister of Health, which made sense. Then it was a second signature, which was the Minister of Agriculture. And I was like, the Minister of Agriculture is signing pharmaceutical documents? Like, right, and that didn't make sense. I thought, this is so dirty. And then the Lieutenant Governor has to sign it, and that's what gives it what we call royal assent. Oh. And it always has to have royal assent. And so when I learned about royal assent, I was like, this is because our system is the British system, which is so bad for democracy. Her Majesty the Queen is the head of state. And that's wrong. We need to have the citizens as the head of state. We, we all are under that power of the crown. And we will never really have our freedom as long as we have that in our governance model in Canada at all jurisdictional levels. So it's, this is a huge, huge long-term problem for our country. Mm-hmm. Wow. So you started, you know, connecting with other moms and people that felt the same way. Um, you know, how big is your reach right now? Like, are you mostly talking to Canadian women? Well, or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot, a lot of Canadian women will know who I am. I started being recognized on the street. Um, the media and the government started going after me. I was threatened many times, uh, which is part of the reason why I left Canada. But... Um, we we made a lot of noise and we we woke up a lot of people in the province and we this was before COVID right we thought it was just a provincial BC problem and that's when I realized that that these kinds of problems and even COVID are actually a great opportunity because it creates the space for new leaders and leaders like your audience people who are are the dreamers and the empaths and the people with beautiful souls you know I had worked for 30 years and nobody had ever once wanted to really listen to my political point of view until now. Mm. And so now, that is the great moment of right now is if everybody realizes we've got a, a crap world that needs to be rebuilt, well, it's, it's us that need to rebuild it. And so we need everybody out doing that. And the, the women and the mothers are the best to work with because they just get stuff done and there's, there's no bullshit <laughs> with them, right? Yes, I can I can imagine and also some of that I call it the mama bear energy, you know. Exactly. With, with the rollouts and you know, to children and of the jabby jabby, uh, the mama bear is coming out, you know. They're coming out in droves, like, wait a second, <laughs> like that is not okay. Um and it's it's really beautiful to see. Um and uh that's great that you, you know, have all this connection with these women doing that. So tell us a little bit more details about, you know, why you decided to leave Canada and what actually happened. Like, what did you do? Yeah, well, 
when I when we all started realizing how much bigger this was, you know, towards month six, seven, eight. I mean, even when it started, I could tell the propaganda was so heavy. I was like, it's going to take us a couple of years to get out of this because I've been involved with human rights for for a long time. I thought we're not just going to be able to kind of switch this back in a couple of weeks. I thought, oh my god, six months a year. I thought. And then I realized how few people understood what was going on and how few people related to the fact that I was trying to get the truth out. I was like, I'm going to have to wait for Canada to wake up until anybody is going to be able to appreciate someone like me. And you just, in a way, you kind of have to wait. There's a waiting time. It's like trying to have a relationship with somebody. They've got to clean up their act. You know, they've got to <laughs> tidy their house or they've got to get divorced before you can have a beautiful, new, fresh relationship. There's a lot of great things in life require waiting, right? I thought, I'm going to have to wait. And I thought, I can't go through a second winter in this country under these conditions. I won't make it emotionally. I knew that because not only is being a frontline activist and advocate hard on a day-to-day basis, I've been arrested and threatened and all that, it's emotionally really disturbing. You know, it's so brutal to see humanity harming humanity. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I'm going to have to get out before the second winter. And my husband was British. So we started making a plan. And I said, as soon as I've got the money, as soon as we've got enough money, we're buying tickets and we're out of here. And we're not going to tell anybody. And we got out just before the travel restrictions went into place, which are all fake and unlawful, but I didn't want to have to deal with any of that. So right. we left at the end of August, and nobody, I, hardly anybody knew that when we were leaving. I was being profiled and, and followed at that time. didn't really even know? Some of them did, um, but a, the, the key ones were very angry with me, uh, and I wasn't in t- contact with them very regularly, other than through sort of mail and some simple correspondence, because they, even they didn't know. A lot. I come from a medical kind of family, and I faced a lot of backlash from my close friends and family when I started the protest. So they were not the first person I went to, uh, the people I went to anyway. <laughs> you right. Know what you're I mean? like, well, <laughs> you're on a need-to-know basis, and you didn't need to know until now. I'm over there now. Yeah, and I had been battling the public and, and, and people in our movement and being thrown in prison, and I had people coming to my house. I was evicted twice. I had, there was a real campaign against me, and I, I had people telling me that. I had people giving me intel, basically. Who There was people being paid to threaten me and stuff. So I didn't want to have to fight my family members that I loved. I didn't want to also have these conversations with them. They knew right. what I was doing. They, the word was out in the family, and I said, the ones who have come to me are the ones who are open-minded, and some of mm-hmm. them still don't really want to hear my story because they've bought into this. Right, and they don't want to even believe that all these things happen to you. Well, I can't speak for them. I can't help but think they must be slightly confused. But my family mostly has never lived outside of Canada. You know, I've lived all over the world for 30 years, Mm. and most of them have not. And so Mm. they mostly only know what it's like to live in Canada. And they don't know that the injustices that exist in the rest of the world are now in our country. They don't, they, I think a lot of them may still be believing the propaganda. Okay. Okay. So, you know, one of the things that I think scares people the most, and which is one of the benefits of having you live here, you know, on, on, the, on the show, is they're like, well, what if I stand up for myself? You know, will I be attacked? Will my family members be attacked? How can I get through this? How can I get, you know, like what happens if I get jailed or fined or whatever? 
And so we'd love to know from your perspective, how did you get through that? Like, you know, it doesn't start really, like, subtly and then ramps up as you continue, quote-unquote, stubbornly doing what you're doing. Um, is there some sort of pattern to it? H how do you handle something like that? Well, I, the metaphor I would use, it's like the armed forces. So for someone like me, and I don't, I've never done this kind of activism before, I was one of the first people out there literally to stand in downtown Vancouver with signs saying public health fraud. And I knew it was crime. I knew it was organized financial crime. And I knew that it was connected to something much bigger. And it was foreign funded. I knew that this was international treason and those kinds of crimes. So I, if, when the, the, the model, the metaphor of the armed forces in war say, I was one of the first forces out there with the flak jacket. You know, the first battalion that they send out that who are the harshest and the strongest, yep. you send those ones out first, right? And that was me. And so I took the bullets for so many other people and we knew that and I knew that. And I knew I had to because I was stronger and I was more awake and I had skills. I had right. education skills. I had intellectual skills. I had contacts. I had money. I could get through it. And so I got through it without going down because I had this flak jacket on. I was talking about that quite a bit. So now it's a very different story. We're going into the second year, right? The end of the second year. It's mm -hmm. so much safer and so much more accessible for everybody else to start getting involved. But in those first six months, it, it really wasn't. And people would have experienced what I did. So it wasn't a good idea for people to go out there if they didn't have those emotional skills that I had. I've been, I was trained professionally to do human rights work in a war. Um, and that's why I knew I had to get out and start this because I could, I could, basically I could. And I was out there with very strong activists. But now it's different. And people are refusing and standing up and doing podcasts and, and it's going more mainstream. What we, what we say in activism is the movement is broadening. It's becoming more broad-based. And you'll see like high school students doing something about it. There was nobody out there with us in the beginning like that. Wow. It was wow. very different. And that's why we were easy targets because there were so few of us. Right. So, so what did they actually arrest you for? I was arrested by um, provincial law enforcement sheriffs inside the B.C. Supreme Court. They said it was because I refused to wear a mask. But that's not why. They harmed me and they threw me in solitary because I had power and they knew who I was and they were trying to scare me. It wasn't because I was wearing a mask. It was because I was telling them something they already knew, which was this is crime. And so they beat me up and chucked me in a cell uh, yeah, and forced me. Well, yeah, I mean, they grab you and wrestle you to the ground and put handcuffs on you. I mean, it's an assault, right? It is an assault because I wouldn't play the game. And I said, I, I have every right to stand here. A, a mandate is not a law. And they, and they also get their egos bruised, right? A bunch of guys with tattoos and guns. And here's this mother standing there with, right. you know, a wool jacket on and my cell phone. And they don't like that. They don't like it when someone of education, with education and power challenges them. So mm -hmm. that was the first one. The second one was federal law enforcement. So it was RCMP, an exact same story. I refused to comply with unlawful mandates with masks and a security guard phoned them and I had agreed to leave the mall. I was in a shopping mall because I was done. I was finished shopping and I was pointing out to them that, that mandates are not laws and they're not 
they don't apply if the person doesn't consent. And so it's, yep. it, that a mandate has to have the recipient consenting for at, it to actually be valid. And again, they didn't like that. And so they grabbed me and they arrested me and they gave me a fake fine. And it's just so sad to see, I mean, these are Canadians are nice people. These guys are the people that arrested me, their parents, they're, they're going home to feed their children and pay their mortgages and stuff. That it has come to that in our country, that, that we treat each other like that now. To me, that's the greatest loss. It is. It's it's so sad. Um, we it's just really hard to imagine. And yet, you know, um, after the, going after you and and uh, some of the initial folks in Canada, we see, you know, other people in Canada like pastors and ministers, you know, um, just defying. They're keeping their churches open. You know, they're serving people. They they are feeding the hungry, and being put in jail. You know, um. Well, and this is what Justin Trudeau is, is doing, and he even admits it on camera. He's literally trying to push Canada backwards socially. He's moving us backwards, you know, 100 years back before we had the broad-based human rights and the civil liberties that we had enjoyed until COVID. And so they've decided to use force and threats and violence. And that was a part of what they launched as COVID that it was coming with that. And that's when you look at the financial corruption behind this, you see the money that they put into things like sheriffs and private security and fences and weapons and stuff. It's a very militarized, um, you know, threatening, violent type campaign they're running. And it's all coming from the federal government. It's, that's, the, that's the head of all of this. Well, we definitely see more of that. At least maybe that's just what I'm seeing. But we definitely see more of that from Canada and Australia than we do in the U.S. at the moment um, in terms of... Yeah, I think Canada is a major player in this. And I think the G7 is a bit... Yeah, Trudeau is known to be kind of the godfather of the G7. And ironically, yeah, it's a, it's a long story. But he's, there's like, say, seven or eight main leaders. I think there's 20 countries, that seven or eight main leaders. And I think they're a big part of this, the G7. They've met quite regularly since COVID. And it's those countries that are suffering the most, Australia, Britain, um, Canada, the United States. And Trudeau is very connected to the European leaders because he's from Quebec. And Quebec runs Canada. And they run it like a mafia, basically. And he's in that system. So he sees himself as a very, it's just kind of gross, actually, watching him. He sees himself as a very, privileged person that he has this kind of like holier than thou above the law attitude his father was exactly the same i mean i remember watching him when i was a kid on tv you know it's the same attitude towards governance uh that's so interesting um and uh you know it's a a ruling over as opposed to um working for us they know better they're the rulers Yes, and and of course, you know, <clears throat> he's been caught several times, you know, not masking, not doing the same thing, and even there was one video where, you know, him and, and Sophie were getting the injection, and there was no needle, you know, they did a close-up, you know, one of the Canadian nurses did a video, and she said, I'm a nurse, I, I know how to give injections, this is not how you give injections. And I saw that, and I was like... Yeah, and the government employees, they're not actually subject to the restrictions and the mandates. They are exempt by law, all government employees. So that's why we saw them... Yeah, and that's half a million federal employees. There's 500,000 federal employees in Canada. So that's why we saw some of these guys going on 
holiday last Christmas and coming yeah. back, there was one in particular. He knew that he could go and do that because he actually wasn't subject to the restrictions the way the, mm-hmm. the civil population is. So he actually wasn't breaking any, any uh, mandates because he wasn't subjected to them. That's another part of this whole thing that is so unjust. And is it really ridiculous. Just for the right? masses. Like if, yeah. if it really was about our health, if it really was about preventing the spread and all that kind of stuff, it would apply to everyone equally. I, I had the spouse of a federal sitting MP, and I have not named them or doxed them or whatever you call it because I don't know. I just, I'm not that kind of person. But they admitted to me that they were threatened by the federal government if they didn't go along with what they called the reset. The reset was announced, and they were going to go. They were going to do it, and the uh, pandemic was going to be announced with COVID. And if they didn't go along, their careers were over. Mm-hmm. That's what they were yeah. told in the beginning. All 338 sitting MPs. Well, that's extortion. In all parties, yeah, blackmail, extortion, fraud, treason—you name it. <clears throat> but how it was sold to them, you know, what was said to them, how 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 the language that they used, I don't know. I mean, we'd like to investigate and find all of that in documents as criminal evidence, but you could see how a lot of them might, depending on it, how it sounded to them, think, well, this is just the evolution of the country, you know, and we have to change things, we have to change the economy. And my federal MP is actually one of the main problems in all of this, my former one, because she is the Minister of Digital Government. So she must be the one overseeing, cooking up this whole passport scam. Wow, wow. Well, and, and yeah, my my sitting MP. <laughs> that that the people are like, well, you know what? It, it's a scarcity mindset, but it's more like, well, my, me, as long as me and my family are okay, I get, I don't give two shits about excuse the language anybody else. You know, so whatever they were promised, whatever they you know were manipulated, I think basically they care about themselves and their families, and that's about it. So too bad. Well, that that for sure, for Maybe. sure. But I think um, there was a guy where he's Eastern European living in Russia, living in Australia. He was just interviewed. And he said something so important, I think, because I'm always looking for the bigger, the broader strokes for the average person to relate to, right, to put the pieces into place. What is really going on, right? Mm-hmm. And what are, what are our big problems? And he said the countries that are hardest hit are the welfare state countries like Canada and Australia and England. Because we have been conditioned to believe for many decades that our governments are benevolent yeah, and that they will take care of us. And so it's very hard for the average Canadian to not think that. But then you come across your Eastern European people and they knew right away what this was because they lived under communism. Yeah. Canadians never had that. And some of them may never, they may continue to go down with this for the next five years because they've never traveled, they've never lived in oppressive countries, they've never seen dictators or whatever. So they don't actually know the signs. No, right. And it's like the signs, you know, how we're taught in the history books are uh, highly, you know, um, colorized and, and accurate in many cases is that we just figured, wow, these people were really stupid. You know, they just kind of like, you know, let the Nazis take over or whatever, but that's not how it happens, right? You and I know like it, it's little by little by little by little, this little freedom here. Well, yeah, and we were, all, we were all threatened, right? Like Canadians are not stupid. They're incredibly compassionate, kind, 
mm-hmm. you know, generally educated, generally kind of middle class people. That's the, yeah. that's the stripe of our country. And right. I love that about us. And I refuse to call Canadians stupid. But um, we were completely lied to and we still are under this propaganda scam. And so we, you can't go anywhere in the country without seeing these lies in the media, television, radio. It's everywhere, bus stops. Um, and so it's, mm-hmm. it's, it is a conditioning. It's hard to, and that's probably why your audience is, is really struggling right now is they will know on so many levels emotionally how damaging it is that what we're living under right now. But since there aren't guns, you know, and the police aren't you know, like assassinating people, but the, but the suffering is there, the, the trauma, the persecution, it's all there. It's just, it's just sort of a gray invisibleness to it. Mm-hmm. And, and I think people's hopefulness is that, well, if we just comply just a little longer, right, it'll all be fine. Well, and people don't have a choice. You know, I, the strong ones do, right? Like I'll go in and do all those months in Vancouver, but you're, you're not allowed to even think about not complying. There really isn't choice. Socially, there isn't. You walk into a store and every single person is masked. It doesn't feel like you have a choice on a subconscious level. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. the signs are everywhere, those bloody circles that are on the ground, the plastic. <laughs> like, <laughs> they really so knew funny. what they were doing. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah. Well, we have some of those circles, too, in some of our stores. Yeah. Um, so, you know, so you, so you, you escaped to the UK. So the question is, well, I mean, you said your husband, you know, has a, was from there, so you escaped there. Is it any better? I mean, what's going on there? We yes. see stuff about Boris Johnson, we see yes. stuff going on in the UK, and it looks just as restrictive in many cases. So what's going on there? Okay, well, today he announced no more restrictions because he's in trouble. And the Brits are very, very angry with him. I mean, he's a bit of a, an unusual politician. Like, he doesn't wear a mask sometimes, and then he does. He, he, he really is a kind of a, very, a much more obvious puppet than Trudeau. You know, it doesn't even look like the guy brushes Trudeau's his hair or tucks in his... Yeah, Trudeau right? He's really slick. slick. Oh, yeah. Bor- Boris isn't. And the British wow. have a great tradition of totally mistrusting and even hating their government very much part of British culture. So everybody is ready to mistrust and hate the government, particularly the conservatives, and it's a conservative federal government now. Um, They're always attacked and criticized for being elitist, and I live in the working class part of the country, which is the northern, where two-thirds of the country lives up north. Mm -hmm. So um, he's in trouble, and that's why he didn't announce any restrictions today, because he's done and a lot of people have said that. His career is completely over. He will be gone in a month. And that's what British people are saying, not me, right? That's what they're saying. So I think, okay, well, maybe they know. Um, and so you have a population that's much more sus- suspect than Canadians. Okay, Canadians um, and you have a media. Suspect. Yeah, they don't have, I mean, our country is only 150, 60 years old. You know, right. we don't have the history and, and people aren't, firmly committed to being Canadian. A lot of Canadians weren't even born in Canada. True. Whereas here, you know, I go to things that have been around for 800 years. You know, they're firmly, firmly British and Scottish and Irish and they fight for their culture. I I don't think people would say that about Canadians. But the other big piece that is missing is that the media has turned against the government here. 
and they're really? grilling them constantly. Oh yeah, big time. The huh. the govern the 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 COVID racketeering money is still washing through the media, and you can see it. But there's a lot of older good journalists who still work in Britain, and a lot of those journalists we don't have in Canada anymore. We right. just have a lot of millennials. If you look at all the journalists now, they're all like under 30. Okay. Whereas in Britain, it's different. There's still a great tradition of investigative journalism here. So they're on Boris Johnson every day. And the other thing that happened was about 10 days ago, a video was released of him and his little inner cabinet laughing at the public, basically, because we were, they, they were going to have a big party and they weren't going to be distancing or wearing masks. And it was aired all over the country. So everybody is really, really angry here right now. Whoa. Wow, wow. Now, I, I heard that, uh, you know, the media companies, the media giants are owned by, you know, less six or less, you know, people or, or organizations. So how come in, in, the, in the UK they, they don't have their fingers uh, manipulating the media anymore? Well, like I was saying, it, it is happening because there's a corrupt media. And so you'll see, like I saw this story in the paper, oh, life with the anti-vaxxers in a village in England and how, what a joke we all are. But then you read the story closely and there's no author to the story okay. and they never mentioned the name of the village. It was a completely fake story. So someone had planted that in a Rupert Murdoch paper. So you look at it and you think, oh, there's the media, but it's just content, right? It's propaganda. Okay. Then you dig over a couple pages later, other newspapers, and you see the real stories, and you you see the journalists on TV, and they're the ones who are really grilling the government. Wow, and they're allowed to the, be on TV, the, so that is amazing. Yep, because the Brits expect it. They're, they will not stand for journalists who are just um, spouting what the government tells. Like there's a, I can't stress it enough, but... The, the, the public does not trust the government, and they almost never have. That's the history of Britain, how they've evolved as a, a society. There's always been that. They've always been just waiting to get screwed over by the government um, because of their, <laughs> how, you know, how they've evolved. Whereas Canada was very privileged. I mean, look, everybody just sort of went into the middle class quite quick. Where I am up north here, there was like, you know, centuries of absolute poverty, like yeah. centuries of it. Yeah. We don't have that history in Canada. Our, indi right. our indigenous people do. Yeah. So it would be more like the Brits feel more like the indigenous people do in Canada. Mm. And they've lost a lot. They know how much they've lost. Uh, and they've also been very um, Islamified. So there's a huge, huge Muslim influence in the country that was not here 20 years ago. And, and that's disturbing to them. They've seen Britain change a lot. Hmm. Okay. So what about, um, you know, there were some talks about vaccine passports in Britain and what's going on with that? Anything? Well, the anti-passport movement is huge. Okay. And the average British, yeah, they're very organized. And it was, so we were in Canada as well, but it's easier here because the country is so small. Like you oh. can drive across the country in five hours, right? True. There's twice as many people in the size of like Vancouver Island. Mm. It's it's very dense, so you can get a justice movement going really quickly here, oh. and it's all one time zone, yes. right? It's all it's very mm -hmm. dense, so there's that. The movement against it is strong, but again, it goes back to this: the average Briton. Because I ask politely when I go into places, I say I don't mask. Are you are you going to kick me out or kind of shop? And they'll say, No, of course you can stay here. You have a choice. Like the average person actually believes that. 
from a security officer to a CEO. And they've all been told by head offices, you don't talk to the customers who aren't wearing masks, just let them be. And that's, we don't have that in Canada. Everybody's policing each other, whereas that doesn't happen here really. Wow. wow. Well, Brits, I'm, I'm in, I'm in New it. York and we're like, you know, we're like the uh, Australia of U.S., right? So between us and California, they try things out and see if people will comply. And so our governor put uh, some sort of mask policy in place. Face coverings are required uh, for those two years and older unless you cannot medically tolerate it. Uh, and or the uh, or the or the, the or the place has to have a vaccine passport, which nobody, at least where I live, has voted for that. They'd rather do the mask thing. But fas- fascinatingly enough, um, most people do not know that uh, she never signed an executive order. And of course, as you know, mandates aren't law, right? But there is actually no law either. Like there's no executive order. Well, and that's why our focus needs to be the media. This is a media propaganda campaign. Mm-hmm. And that's where all the money, yeah, that's where all the money is going to. We're all being lied to, and the media is in on it. It doesn't even really matter what the government does anymore. It, this is a war that's going to be won through on television and in the radios. Wow. And every time you go into a shop and you hear that bloody recording, "Hi, welcome to the grocery store. Put your mask on." Right? It's right. it's all about propaganda. And mm. I just listened to an Israeli lawyer um, <clears throat> who was speaking on because Israel is really in trouble. And he's so much more aware of that. And he's actually asking German lawyers to help them, if you can believe this, <laughs> um, to help Israel, to help Jews. Yeah, yeah, because he, they can see it. They are major, major victims of yeah. media propaganda in Israel. And they're, they know that their freedoms are being hijacked. They're very aware of it. Hmm. Now, you're, you're connected to people all over the world. So tell us a little bit more about Israel, because people are looking at Israel as being the you know, the, uh, vac- I suppose, vaccine booster testing ground of the world? Yeah, in their own way, right? Because they were the Pfizer um, human population trial. Basically, the whole com- country was sold out to a Pfizer human population trial. Mm-hmm. But they're very intellectual and they're very probing. And so they've also exposed a lot more than a lot of other countries. But again, small country, very militarized a lot of social pressure, you know, be Israeli and don't rock the boat. I can't really speak on that because I've never been to Israel and I'm not an Israeli person or Jewish. Mm -hmm. But that's one of the key countries to look at as well as all of the leaders throughout Europe who are working through groups like what Reiner Fulmick is doing, you know, the criminal investigations. There's so many of them now. I would probably say there's 50 amazing professional leaders who are on this right now. And it's one of the reasons why I got out of Canada. I actually thought I might be able to help Canada more if I wasn't in the country because I have freedom to speak and freedom to move now and I can shine a light back. That's the other thing that's really interesting here is everybody hates Justin Trudeau. Like they say, oh, you're Canadian. And they go, wow, you have the worst prime minister in the world. They all know. Yeah, I didn't even know if they would know that what his name was, right? I didn't know how aware of Canada, but a lot of them have relatives there. The average American has no idea, so I don't think. No, they (laughs) all say, oh, he's the worst. Well, they see him on TV, and what they see is this sort of, you know, privileged uh, virtue signaling guy, and it's the opposite of what, who the British people are. Like, there's no Mm -hmm. virtual signaling here. These people are very real open, plain-talking people. But that's the average yeah. British person. I'm not talking about fancy lawyers in London and stuff. So right. it's pretty, especially where I am, you know, there's no bullshit up here. 
and they see someone like Trudeau and they can just see it, right? They know how staged it is. Wow, wow, wow. But well, there's, I, there's I mean, so much. I, I got my, you know, the wool pulled over my eyes. You know, I didn't know I was out of Canada back then, but when I saw this, this, this bright young man, you know, as uh, prime, uh, prime Minister, I was like, oh, well, good for him. You know, he legalized marijuana. That's a good step. <laughs> That's about all I knew. But, you know, I had no idea, like all this other stuff that was going on um, until recently. So. Well, he's, he's a global-minded person. And, you know, he believes that Canada should be globalized. That's what he believes. And maybe a lot of other people believe that too. But the problem is he is breaking multiple, multiple sovereign laws. And he doesn't care because he thinks that his agenda is actually more important than our sovereign laws. And he even says that when he's interviewed. Yes, we know we're going to be violating human rights, but we're going to do it anyway. So he believes that the, 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 the suffering, you know, it's like when you punish a child, right? And they, they're sad, you take away their toy or their video game, or whatever, and you know they've got to learn the lesson, but you do it anyway or dieting or exercise. You know, you've got to do that hard thing because the rewards are going to be worth it. Yeah. And I, I do think that's probably how he justifies all of this. So, But being here is wonderful to share back with Canada or the States because there's also so many, there's so much positive stuff going on. Like I have no question that we're going to win and we're going to win in the next six months. You know, the entire world knows what's going on now. Wow. And we're, wait, wait till the, the criminal aspect of all this starts to become our focus. Criminal investigations, criminal indictments. Because the world isn't just going to go, okay, fine, sorry, you guys all screwed up, let's go back to normal. No, you know, we've got five or ten years worth of retribution coming. I mean, look well, what happened in Nuremberg after the Second World War. Yeah, that's going to be the next focus, right, as the next five years is the retribution. Mm. Well, and people, I, I feel like um, that are on the, you know, the Great Awakening side on, on some level are like, well, hey, we've had all these truth bombs and truth drops and WikiLeaks and all this kind of stuff in America, and yet, why does Fauci still have a job? Why is he not in jail? You know, his emails showed this and that and said this and that and, you know, bioweapons and... and well, I think Trump missed the opportunity to fire him. He should have. Because Biden's not going to. It was, I think that was the opportunity for Trump to deal with it. He just didn't. (laughs) I mean, that's high. Well, because the Biden administration wants him doing what he's doing, right? They're in on this whole global thing, too. Mm -hmm. Well, and and, uh, other senators, I mean, certain senators are popularizing themselves for their criticism, I suppose. But nothing seems to happen. Seems to happen. Well, the the amount, if you look at, I always follow the money, right? You look at the money that goes through Fauci's um, and I, control, you know, through, yeah, there's, I think there's two organizations, right? Everybody's feeding off that money. So he's, he's the guy with the keys. He's the, you know, he's the dealer. And they don't want to get rid of him because if he leaves and everything starts to clean up, then all of those guys in Washington that are profiting off, you know, backroom stock market deals and things like pharmaceuticals, they... They don't want to lose him. He's the fixer. Hmm. Yeah, That's how I see it. I mean, if yeah. I was them, that's what I would want. I would want him exactly right there where he is. And I think there's also a certain amount of p- paralysis going on. I think a lot of people are like, okay, now what's going to happen? Like, we've, this has never happened in history before. We've never had a problem like this. We've also never had a solution. 
who's going to come up with all these solutions to, to you know, ensure a just world again? We're writing, we're writing the history books right now. We're, writing, we're building the code to the program. It's like the crypto industry. You know, that's at the beginning of, of the next 100 years of having a crypto world, and the same with justice. Every country now is going to have to almost rebuild their entire governance structures so this doesn't happen again. And that's pretty daunting, and some won't. It is. And, and how are, and since you, know, you talked about uh, Rhino Fulmuth, um, how effective are these you know, world um, you know, criminal investigations, things like that? Because we get this passed around you know, in emails, Facebook Messenger, wherever we won't be censored. And yet we're like, okay, we're still waiting. Like, what's going on? Like, is anything happening? Like, you know what I mean? Was yeah, there... like, how's it all? Okay, so this is my prediction how it's all going to, the, the dominoes falling and stuff, is it's going to happen by resignation. And we've already had quite a few high-profile ones. Um, okay. Even the Federal Minister of Finance, he was gone within the first six months. And people think it was because of the Wee scandal, but... I think that was cooked up so he could get out of there because he would have been the most liable and he's a very smart man. So our federal finance minister was the first out. <laughs> you know what I mean? So if you look at things like that, the head of state uh, resigned last week in the United Kingdom. The police are now investigating members of parliament. I think there's going to be a whole bunch of other resignations out of um, number 10 out of the British so government. So how does the resignations There's, help this cause? I don't get that part. Well, the smart ones bail because they can see the criminal investigations coming. Yeah, uh, and we had eight... off the hook. Well, a lot of them will be. So the eight cabinet members in British Columbia that were allowed this, this scam to start and accepted the money into British Columbia, they walked out the back door last year in an election and nobody even remembers who they are. The finance minister left. Seven uh -huh. other ministers of the cabinet left. The head of Translink left, and he went back to the United States, so we'd have to extradite him. Mm. Um, so it, it's not like the media is going to suddenly come out and go, oh, my God, everybody, it was all a lie. We're going to prosecute them all now. It won't be like that. It's going to be very slow and, and subtle and, and painful. But it's kind of like Harvey Weinstein. I think that's what's going to happen. He, you know, he was able to get away with those crimes for 30 years, and then boom, that one news story with Ronan Farrow and the two women that came out, then everybody else turned on Harvey Weinstein. So I, I'm waiting for that moment, that there's going to be, like if Boris, if Boris is thrown out, if, if the UK is going to be this first country or Israel, then it will be like dominoes. Mm. The, the bigger problem, though, is like even all these elected officials, they go on, right? Like we won't have Trudeau one day. We won't have Christia Freeland. We won't have Horgan. Bonnie will be gone. All these people go just through time and attrition. They'll be gone, right? They're just sitting in a role. So if they're all gone 10 years from now and we have new people that aren't necessarily more ethical, the biggest problem we have is we're stuck with these really authoritarian laws that we have to undo. Yeah. You know, they've changed major statute law. And one of them is, say, for example, that you have to have a medical test before you get on an airplane. We have to undo that. <laughs> and that's, that's big, hard legislative stuff. And so for me, that's the focus for the next 10 years is looking at all of the unlawful um, policies that have been put into place that are now becoming normal. Oh, it's normal that you have a test before you fly. We have to get rid of that. 
Yes. <laughs> well, I, I actually um, wanted to go to a convention in, in uh, Florida. So uh, I said to my husband, because he's such a sweetheart, I said, um, I'd really like to go, and um, I'd really like you to drive us. <laughs> no, I'm that's exactly what you should I, do. I'm not putting yeah. a mask on. I'm not testing. And uh, honestly, I don't really want to be around those kind of people. And he said, okay, right. So that's what we did. We, we drove all the way down, and it was very pleasant. And there was, I think, only at the hotel in Florida, which I was not you know, emotionally prepared for, is that somebody that worked for the hotel convention center wanted to take our temperature, and she was masked, and she wanted us to sign a waiver, which we clearly said no. And she said, well, you have to. I said, actually, we don't. I, said, I didn't say it that nicely, but... Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, and then what was she going to do, chase us, right? There was like 20 people at her desk waiting to get their temperature taken, you know. so we just Yeah, and that's the real power, right, is the united mass noncompliance. That's really all we need. I mean, they had, there was a huge protest in London last week, and they had, they pushed the police out. That's amazing. So that's what we need to do. We just need to do that. I don't know whether Canada is going to get there or whether Canada will become an authoritarian state. I, I don't know what's going to happen. To be honest with you, a lot of Canadians are, I think, have relaxed or they're just like, okay, whatever, and I'll get around this. They're, the urgency, I don't know if the urgency is there. There's also a lot of resources and money that these people want from Canada that they don't necessarily want from other countries. Mm, you know, they don't, what do they want from Jamaica? <laughs> they don't want anything from Jamaica, right? Barbados has already left the Commonwealth because of this. But Canada, you know, that's the jewel in the crown. There's oil, there's energy, there's land, there's real estate, there's fish. Mm-hmm. That, that's what they want. And that's one of the problems with Canada is it's just a big, rich piece of land that yes. everybody wants. That makes sense. Well, and, and you know, I, I do see when they have World Freedom Day and things like that, that we see drone footage of, you know, Young Street and, um, you know, uh, Montreal and, and people standing up and, um, you know, walking and protesting. So that is very heartwarming. And at the same time, I realized uh, that's just two places in Canada, right? Like my parents are completely oblivious to it, and they live in Toronto. Yeah, and that's why these new voices, and like I spoke about the armed forces before, you know, the fresh blood and the young the new, um, the new energy and the people who are stronger with more innovative ideas, things that I never did or whatever. We need to keep nurturing and training these kinds of people because you never know who's going to suddenly change the game. And it could happen at any moment or evidence we find. Can you imagine if we, somebody exposed a video like they exposed out of London of Trudeau sitting around talking about, well, we've got to threaten everybody. And can you imagine if something like that leaks? So th- that's why justice can be very exciting. You know, it's like a sports game. Suddenly there's a steal <laughs> and somebody's headed towards the goal with the puck and the game suddenly gets exciting. Oh, yeah, I see. So, um, But I wanted about- to emphasize again that, that question that you had asked before. I just want to make sure I don't miss this for your audience is that now is the moment for people who are listening, you know, to your show and people like me that I waited for many years, decades almost, for people to understand who I was and what I had to contribute to the world, and I felt like there were so many doors that were closed to me. They don't care. He doesn't care. This investor doesn't care. I tried to open a vegan restaurant. I couldn't get money because people didn't care about the vegan thing back then, years ago, seven years ago. Mm -hmm. And I stood at the sidelines waiting 
for somebody to understand the world that I wanted to create. And now is the moment. And so many people like you and me and your audience, we all need to get out there and start to get busy. I don't mean you got to get out there and protest and cause problems for yourself or get arrested, but now is the time to step into that answer when someone says, okay, so what kind of world do we want? Now is the time to start imagining it and building it because that is happening at the same time that this tyranny is happening. It's happening mm-hmm. simultaneously. Yeah, we can't just wait. You know, some people are like, oh, watch the show, you know, and we're waiting for somebody to rescue us. So that I, and I just know deep down that's, that's not how it's going to work. It's going to be each of us standing up. Yeah, who's building the new world? That, and it's happening, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very positive. And I, I am like, oh my gosh, one of the least political people I know. Like, I don't know who anybody's names are like, and who rules what. And, and history was not my favorite topic. You know, I'd much you know, rather do like math and science. But, um, you know, I, when I get, the, you know, that's why you know, I follow you on Instagram and you know, other people and Canadians Frontline Nurses, a friend of mine, um, Kristen. So, you know, I'm following and learning, 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 and then just realizing that, wow, I, I, I maybe need to question you know, whatever's happening in my state, for example, in New York State. And, uh, you know, just realizing, you know, like, oh, wow, we have this mass mandate, supposedly from, you know, December 13th to January 15th. And then instead of just going, that's it, right, I just go, okay, well, well, yeah, what's really happening here? Okay, so this is like a test. I think this is a test. Then we're like, okay, well, is it law? Well, actually, it's not law. Okay, so is it a signed executive order? Actually, it is not. So it's a test to see who's going to choose vax passports, which businesses, and which ones are going to do mass policies. So I did what I do best with. I'm a creative person. I actually made signs for my local business friends. Nice. Perfect. And Great. So that is my way, <laughs> one of the ways, locally, because I'm not much of a marcher, protester, you know, type of person. Um, but no, but things like, like signs and way. marketing and art, that, that, that's major power. And that is what's being used against us, right? It's all the signage and the marketing and the propaganda. So we need our own level and power and money to produce our own propaganda campaign. You know, make freedom cool again, bring back freedom. So what you did was perfect. And sometimes focusing on a much smaller goal um, is way more satisfying and way more uplifting because you can see a smaller goal happen faster. Mm. Yes. Just yes. one little win in one little store in your neighborhood could change your life, whereas waiting for federal policy to be changed could take 10 years, and that's really depressing, <laughs> waiting that amount of time. Yes, and that's a really good point, is that we can make a difference on a very small level, and that small level is like a trickle that turns into a flood. If there's one person yep. here, one person there, one person there, and you know, there was one business owner who's our, our friend, and she's like, I'm not making my people mask, you know? And I, I don't know how to handle Yeah, especially when people hear about it, right? And that's why I always love doing media. When somebody hears about that little story that somebody did, they go, okay, well, if they did it, then it's possible and I can do it too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I, can, I, I certainly can stories. be disappointed sometimes with certain, you know, certain uh, businesses that, you know, friends of mine, you know, uh, they just don't see it and, uh, and it's sad. But then I meet other people who, like this, this woman is a new friend of mine, um, I said, tell you what, she said, I don't know what to do. Public health comes in and, and, and they, and they, you know, and, and the 20 year olds, what are they supposed to do? I'm not there to protect them. Right. So we actually, you're, you're going to laugh. We actually, uh, got together in a little party and we role played. We role played. Yeah, perfect. Nice. You know, I, I'm the big bad, uh, 
you know, um, public health official coming in. I just couldn't stop laughing. I had to do like five takes. We, did, we actually did it on video. So <laughs> uh, five takes for me not to laugh. Um, but we, you know, we did this and um, we had somebody, you know, acting as, as, as her employee and what they could say or what they could do, you know, if this happened. And we got this little video going and, and uh, we had some great ideas and it was Christmas time, obviously. And, and I said, you know what, the best thing to do is distract them, just start selling them stuff, right? Hey, you look stressed. You could really use our lavender foot bath here. This is on sale this time. I just keep talking. <laughs> and they're usually, most people can't stand to be sold, you know. So we just had such a blast just doing these little things. But it was powerful because that person who felt alone, you know, in their business, who, you know, didn't have all the other businesses around her doing this kind of thing, you know, she's like, I'm going to put your mask policy up in the, in the window. Right, and then she could show this video to her people and say, "This is what you, this is what you can do if this happens." So they feel like, "Okay, I can do this." You know, I've got support. Yeah, and the mechanics of it, right? Like, how do you actually do these things? And that's why I always, for months and months, I would just go and I would do these things to learn. Um, I got a ticket, so I went into Service Canada. I phoned the Attorney General and actually figured out how to make these things disappear rather than being worried about them. I actually figured it out, and then I was wow. able to tell you know, thousands of people, oh, this is how you deal with an unlawful ticket. And so we have the actual solutions, right? And that's one of the things that we've probably you know, been less good at or, or poor at. We've, a lot of people have spent a lot of time complaining about what's happened to us rather than out there fixing it. Mm-hmm. Now, and, and learning are, are, are it and going, okay. Are there experiences in your book? <laughs> Do, can people know how to get out? Well, it's like what is actually book? being, yeah, what is actually being done to us? Like figuring out what a mandate is, looking at reading all these public health orders, like actually educating ourselves and undoing the mechanics of the tyranny. You know, it, they, they are using governance mechanisms to do this to us. So the more we understand our governance mechanisms and how them, they work, the more we can undo them. It's like being able to fix your windshield wiper or you're going to sit at the side of the road and wait for B, the, the, the car insurance company to show up and fix it for you. You might as well spend half an hour learning how to fix your windshield wipers, right? Because then you're going to be able to fix it if it it breaks again. And that's one thing that um, people weren't ready for because they were so propagandized and so in shock. But I I recognize right from the beginning a lot of people as well did is we have to get out there and learn. Like that order in council and me going to my MLA, me actually understanding that they were using things called orders in council. I didn't know they existed. Mm. And I was like, oh, that's what they're using, <clears throat> figuring out, you know, who's writing them and, and who's responsible. And also naming individual names, mm-hmm. you know, it's blaming ourselves. It's, it's Jane, you know, it's Michael, it's David Smith. Or who, it's, the corruption doesn't happen by governments. It happens by individuals who work inside governments. And that's why these criminal investigations and criminal indictments are so important. They didn't just blame the Nazis for what, for what Germany did. They brought 20 men into the courtroom and they sentenced them and they, they assassinated and hung 18 of them, not just the government, but the individuals. And so that's really important too. And that's something that I think Canadians are very nervous of because we generally don't do that in our society. We don't call out and point fingers. I mean, we do more now, I guess, but I had a lot of people say to me, oh, don't, you can't say that. You can't do that. 
Sorry, are you there? Oh, yeah. They, yeah. They, we don't have capital <laughs> in Canada. Well, and it's just not in our, I mean, when I started, like I said, I had a lot of close friends and family aghast that I was calling people out in the government and that I was calling Bonnie Henry a liar because mm-hmm. that's not really what a Canadian does. I mean, we're too That's nine. what an American does. <laughs> yeah. Right, yes, yes, I get that too. <laughs> so forget all that. Forget the politeness. That's, that's how we end up in prison, and that's probably why Hitler was able to do what he was able to do, was he had a, a society that was more passive. And same with South Africa, the whites in South Africa. They were, they were very nervous about how they were going to stop the white governments from persecuting the blacks, because most of the whites didn't want the blacks to be persecuted. Right. But they didn't know how to get, go against their system. Yep. So I'm very grateful for COVID for one reason only, and that's that it has empowered way more Canadians to understand the governance systems that we live under, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And we have a much better chance of being more free and being happier and healthier and wealthier in the next 50 years because of what COVID did to us. Mm, yeah. That's a beautiful, uh, that's a beautiful thing that you just said, and uh, it's very um, positive and hopeful. And, uh, and at the end of the day, that's what everybody needs that support around: is that each of us can make a difference, and even if it's a very small difference, even if it's to you know one person, it still makes a difference. And we don't necessarily have to be, you know, um, health justice warrior the way you are, because we're each individuals, we each have our own skill sets, uh, what we're good at, what we're not good at, um, but each of us can be, you know, growing and growing and growing this tribe of people who stand up and say, no, this is not okay, um, and we can each make a difference. And, and that's very, very different from people just feeling like they don't matter, that there's nothing they can do to help it, so they just have to comply. A very different energy so I really appreciate the work yeah and there's there's these big trends that come from it so my British ancestors are very famous in 1836 they were arrested and they were sent out of the country on ships because they started organizing agricultural labor workers and organizing they didn't use the word union but that's basically what they were doing they were setting up sort of a trade association for the people to speak as a group against their landlords who were cutting their wages and so they really are credited, that's why, this is why they're famous, they're credited with starting the modern-day trade union movement. But if you had said that to them back in 1836, <laughs> right, mm-hmm. they would have no idea back then that they influenced millions and millions of lives for hundreds of years. Wow. And so that's what's happening right now, too. It's like a time capsule moment. Yeah. We just see now and today and this month or maybe this coming year, but what we're actually doing is we're, we're creating a fabric for, uh, for centuries to come. Mm-hmm. And I'm always trying to focus on that, the bigger long-term impact of what we're doing. And there's a nobility in that and there's a graciousness in that that, that a lot of people may, may find sanctuary in, you know, that like, okay, it is, it is so worth it. Every little tiny thing is so worth it for the future. Mm. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you so much, Susan. Uh, everyone listening in, go to healthjusticetees.com, all one word, so healthjustice, and then tees is T-E-E-S, dot com. You can pick up a copy of Susan's book called Betrayed. Uh, learn more about her journey, and there's also, of course, T-shirts there, <laughs> uh, and other products that you can um, purchase to support Susan and her important work 
Um, so Susan, again, uh, thank you so much for being on the show and, and sharing your story with us. It's been really impactful. Awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you for giving me a, the voice. And I'm here to empower others. And I love your audience. And these are the people who will feel their way and be sensitive to what the world needs. Uh, and that, that's power. That's real power. And that's our future. Mm-hmm. I agree. Thank you so much. And thanks, everyone, for listening in. Until next time, bye for now. <laughs>